And uh, dear friends, as you know, we uh, want to take up this book of Acts with you uh, in our morning sermon preaching here. But in order to just understand the book of Acts, we have to understand, and I think many of you know this, right, that the book of Acts is really just volume two, isn't it, of Luke's work, of written work. And that Luke actually began writing in his gospel. And isn't it interesting, my friends, that we have Luke, who has a friend named Theophilus, and he's now writing to Theophilus to give him a more full and accurate uh, account of Jesus Christ. And God in his providence, and I think this is such a beautiful thing, my friends, because we can see how God brought his word to be written, that God in his providence has orchestrated the events of history such that as Luke wrote, word by word, line by line, the Holy Spirit of God was was superintending, was overseeing that work in a way that no other historical writer can lay claim to. And that the words that Luke penned in Luke and then later in Acts became the very words of God. And so this simple act of trying to inform his friend about the works of Christ has now come down to us in Scripture. And I'm told that almost 30% of the New Testament is written by Luke. You wonder if Luke really even had an understanding as he wrote his history that he was writing the Word of God. We're not told. It seems very much that what Luke did was very much what any historian would do. In fact, I'd like to begin the sermon with you in in Luke chapter 1. Because you can see in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 that Luke writes, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you. So here is Luke. Right? God did not speak directly to Luke as I am speaking to you now. Right? Luke says he did historical work. He gathered sources. He compiled documents. He read the accounts of those who had written about these things. He undoubtedly heard the oral accounts, right? People speaking orally about their own, what they had witnessed, what they had seen, what they knew about Jesus, what Jesus had told them. And Luke sifted through all that material as a historian would. And he wrote out his book, Luke, and then later, the book of Acts. But my friends, we believe that behind that whole process was the Holy Spirit of God providentially overseeing that work and ensuring that what Luke wrote was flawless, was infallible. Remember the difference between saying something is inerrant and infallible. It definitely was inerrant, but it was infallible. In other words, it was not even capable of having an error in it. Because the Holy Spirit himself joined himself with Luke in a very mysterious way, such that the word of Luke is now known by us as the word of God. And so we have it. Luke and Acts. Well, let's, can, let's uh, begin then our understanding or our uh, investigation of these books by looking at Theophilus. What can we know about Theophilus? 
Again, I'm, I'm starting out in Luke now, because you'll notice that in Luke, Paul or Luke clearly says he's writing to Theophilus, but then in the Acts of the Apostles that we read in the first chapters, he's still writing to Theophilus. Uh, scholars believe that probably what Luke wrote in his gospel wouldn't fit on one scroll. And so he, he moved to another scroll to write Acts. Again, that's somewhat speculative, but it certainly makes sense. The book of Luke is long. It's quite a long book, the Gospel of Luke. And it would have been a, a large scroll to contain everything that he wrote there. At any rate, what can we say about Theophilus? Well, we note, first of all, from verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, says Luke, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus. Now that word most excellent there implies that Theophilus was a man of some rank, a man of some prestige, a man of some influence in the community. Uh, the, the title most excellent would not have been given to just anybody. All right? It would have applied uh, to people who had some influence in the community. So again, it's hard to know exactly what Theophilus was, what was his rank, what was his title. But we could say that Theophilus was not uh, of the lower classes of society. He probably was a man of some influence, either in the government, uh, or probably in the government of some kind. So here's Luke writing to a man, most excellent Theophilus. We can also conclude from verse 4, Luke 1 and verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So it appears that Theophilus is not a new convert because it appears he already went through the Sunday school and catechism classes, right? It says you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. He already went through a course of instruction. And now Luke is writing to supplement that, to take it further, to give him a more exact account, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So this is Theophilus. Now, that right there, my friends, is the extent of what we know about Theophilus. And of course, it gives rise to many interesting speculations about what was the relationship between Luke and Theophilus. Some have surmised that perhaps Luke was a freed slave of Theophilus. That Theophilus was a man of wealth and that he had these slaves. And again, uh, uh, slaves in the New Testament times oftentimes rose to uh, positions of quite, quite high positions. And so many of them became very educated, as, as Luke had. Again, that's very speculative. We have no idea. Perhaps uh, Theophilus was the man who funded, who provided the, uh, the, uh, the, the money to produce Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts, my friends, were not small projects. Back in the day when you didn't have word processors and computers, right, and you had to rely on either your own writing ability or you had to hire a scribe, you had to have paper, you had to have material. And the size of Luke and Acts would have made them very expensive productions in the ancient world. Perhaps Theophilus was the man who funded the production of these two books. Well, again, I, I raise that uh, information, my friends, because it's just so interesting to me how in the providence of God, he brought these two men together and now, thousands of years later, we are still reading the words that Luke penned and reading them as the very word of God. Well, so much for Theophilus then. We don't know much about Theophilus. That probably wasn't a very satisfying part of the sermon, was it? Uh, because there's so little that we can know about Theophilus. But my friends, now we come to the second point, and that is Luke. We almost know as, just as little about Luke. 
Here's a man responsible for almost 30% of the New Testament. And he's mentioned three times in Scripture. If you do a concordance lookup of Luke, he'll come up three times. Now, the first time does give us some information. In Colossians 4 and 14, we read about Luke because Paul, uh, writing this letter, when he comes to the end of the letter and he's making his personal remarks at the end, as he always does, he says... He says, uh, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. That's in Colossians 4 and verse 14. However, if you back up to verse 11, you'll notice that Paul here is talking about... He's talking about the people who are with him. He says, and also Jesus, or Asus, who is called Justice... These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. In other words, they're Jews. And then he begins to list Epaphras. And in verse 13, he talks about his concern for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas, and he goes on to talk about others. The conclusion from that is, my friends, that Luke is not of those who are of the circumcision. Luke is not a Jew. Luke is a Gentile. That's what we get from Colossians 4.14. First of all, that Luke is not a Jewish person of Jewish ethnicity. He is a Gentile. Now, of course, we also learn from verse 14, the obvious, right? Luke, the beloved physician. So, Luke was a physician. That means he was a man who would have been educated. And so here again, uh, speculation begins, right? And this is all very interesting. And we wish we could know it with more certainty. But is it possible uh, that Luke met Paul in the city of Tarsus? Tarsus was Paul's, uh, was where Paul had been educated. And there was a very renowned medical school in Tarsus. And is it possible that Luke and Paul met? Their paths crossed in the city of Tarsus at the medical school there. Paul wouldn't have been at the medical school, more than likely, but still, perhaps in Tarsus, their paths crossed. It's very difficult to know. Or, others have suggested that perhaps uh, Luke and Paul, that their paths crossed on Paul's first missionary journey. Now, why do I say that? Well, because we read that Paul had a, quite a serious medical condition uh, when he was in, on his first missionary journey. Remember, the first missionary journey was to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And in Galatians 4 and verse 13, Paul writes, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Now that's a, in one sense, that's kind of an agonizing historical detail that Paul just drops there. Like, we just wish we could follow up with, well, Paul, what happened? What do you mean that the reason they heard the gospel was because you got sick? All we can say is that in some way, shape, or form, the reason Paul went to one of those four cities, it's not even clear which one, was because he had a sickness, he had an illness, and it was serious enough that he had to stop his work and rest in one of those cities. And we know that God graciously healed him, he recovered, and he went back to work again. Is it possible then that that's where Paul meant Luke? And that perhaps Luke was the one who had nursed Paul back to health. 
and that in the providence of God, Luke saved Paul's body, and Paul saved Luke's soul. That could be. That could be that Paul preached the gospel to Luke, and Luke brought medical healing to Paul's body. Now, what we can say then is that whatever the case may be, there was this unbreakable bond between Paul and Luke. Because in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, when Paul is ready to die, he knows that he's in his, he's in his second imprisonment now. He knows his life is coming to an end. He, he can read the writing on the wall. The, the, the mood in the empire has turned against the Christians. And Paul says, only Luke is with me. Isn't that, uh, isn't that moving? That, that when Paul came to his final moments, Luke never left him. Paul says in 2 Timothy, everyone else has left me. They've all fled. It's not safe to be friends with Paul, but not Luke. He did not leave Paul's side. And we have to believe that when Paul was let out of that prison, and when he was beheaded, Luke was there. Maybe not at the scene of the execution, but Luke was certainly probably, well, Luke was certainly the last Christian then that would have greeted Paul and wished him farewell as he was led away for execution. Now, I also put on the outline Acts 16, verse 10. Let me just briefly mention that it's in the city of Troas where it appears that Luke begins to travel with Paul on his second missionary journey. So that's another place where, where scholars will uh, surmise that perhaps the paths of Luke and Paul crossed in Troas. Because that's where Luke begins to say, and then we did this, and we went here, and we went there, and we did that in the book of Acts. And so it seems that perhaps that's where their paths crossed. And from then on, it was Luke and Paul always together. Again, those are all speculations, but very interesting speculations. And we can, we can say with certainty from 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, that there was this bond, this unbreakable bond between those two men, Paul and Luke, were always together. Well, we come to the book of Acts then. Why the book of Acts? Why was the book of Acts written? Well, we can say that the most obvious reason, of course, is that Paul or Luke wanted to teach Theophilus and wanted to take him further, right? Theophilus had been taught the first principles of the Christian faith, and now Luke wanted to take him farther, wanted to explain to him more of the words of Jesus, what Jesus had done and what Jesus had said. And so he writes the book of Luke to the gospel of Luke to Theophilus. But then Luke doesn't stop there. Luke begins, perhaps with funding from Theophilus, to proceed to write the book of Acts on a new scroll, perhaps. And he begins to write out again. And that's why he says in Acts 1, verse 1, the first account I composed, that's the gospel of Luke, Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And then Luke continues to carry on with what Jesus did after he had ascended into heaven. But is there another reason why Acts may have been written? Did Luke perhaps have another thought in his mind? And here, I just want to share this with you because I found this very interesting as well, that some have surmised that Luke wrote the book of Acts as a legal defense for Paul. Now, why would they say that? Because at the end of the book of Acts, you have Paul is in his, he's in prison. He's in Rome and he's imprisoned. He's appealed to Caesar. And he's in prison. And then, boom, the book of Acts just ends. It's just done. The, the last verses of Acts basically say, and Paul was in prison, period. 
And, and so many people have said that seems such an odd way to end a book. Especially if you're writing a story, right? You like to wrap things up. You like to, how did things end, right? But we don't get that with the book of Acts. We have just, it just, poof, it's just done. Right in the middle of Paul's imprisonment. In fact, we can even say that it's a bit of a cliffhanger, right? It's a bit of a, well, well what happened to Paul? Did he go to trial? Was he acquitted? Was he turned loose? Or was he, was he executed? What happened to Paul? We want to know. But Luke doesn't provide that. You can see that gives us a clue that Luke was not just writing the book of Acts simply to convey information or simply to tell us a story or simply to give information about what Jesus did in Luke and then to follow that up with what Jesus did after his ascension. Now there's another reason that this seems to be especially focused on the Apostle Paul and that is that every time that Paul gets in trouble and he, he goes before a trial or he's imprisoned, Luke really dwells on that. He really gives much detail about that. And it seems, again, that Luke is focusing on what Paul did, where he came from, how he got started, what his driving aims were, what his goals were, how he got into trouble. And Luke always makes very careful to explain how he was accused and how he was vindicated and set free and all these things that lead people to believe that perhaps Luke meant the book of Acts especially to be something of a legal defense for Paul while he was at his trial. Now again, who can say whether that's the case or not? There's a great deal of evidence for it, and it's very interesting, but it, uh, it, it's impossible to prove. Well then, my friends, I come to the big picture, the big picture, because it's one thing to ask, why did Luke write the book of Acts in a specific historical situation in which he was. But now for us, as the covenant people of God, here we are, right, February 5 in 2023, asking, what is this book of Acts for us? What is it going to teach us? Where does it fall in the history, in the, in the, in the storyline of Scripture, as it were? And that's the beautiful thing that I want to set before you now. This is really the most interesting thing. Let me begin where God begins in the Word. That we know that God had a plan of salvation in eternity past. That God made a covenant with his son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of his people. The eternal covenant of grace in eternity past. Long before time began, God and Jesus, right? The, the first and second persons of the Trinity, and we can uh, conclude that the third person of the Trinity had a role in this as well, made a covenant together, an eternal covenant of grace, an eternal covenant of salvation towards God's chosen people. And we know that each of the covenants then that we have in scripture, right, when we, we've talked already about God's covenant that he made with Noah, God's covenant that he made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God's covenant that he made with his people Israel at Mount Sinai, God's covenant that he made with his servant David in 2 Samuel 7. And then we know in scripture there is talk of a new covenant, now, each of those historical covenants, each of those individual covenants, as I've explained before, are just chapters in the book, in the larger book of God's eternal covenant of grace. Each of those covenants unfolds a different aspect, a different slice, as it were, of what God would have us to know about his eternal plan of salvation to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, and so on and so forth. Now, when we get to the New Testament, my friends, we find that the, that the people of God are expecting something new. 
they are under what in the New Testament is known as the Old Covenant, or the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. And the New Testament is clear that the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai was an old covenant, and more importantly, it was a deficient covenant. What does that mean? Did, did God do something wrong? Did God, did God do something that didn't work? No, because the problem wasn't so much with the covenant itself as with the people to whom it came. And I think I, I preached on this some weeks back. Remember I said that, the, that, the, that Paul sees God's covenant with Moses as a, as a picture, as a type of God's covenant of works. A, a, a legal covenant. In other words, a covenant where God says, here are my commands, now do them. And the whole history of Israel, my friends, is a history of failure, isn't it? I mean, how many times do we read it in the book of Judges, in the book of Kings, Samuel, Chronicles, right? Failure after failure after failure. They fail to keep God's covenant. Why? Because as Paul will say in the New Testament, it is a, it is a deficient covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, this is, again, what I preached on some weeks back, You'll remember that Paul called that covenant a ministry of death. Do you remember that? A ministry of death. Why? Because when God gives his people rules to keep, a law to keep, that always ends in failure. That always ends in death, doesn't it? Because there is sin within us that drives us to go against God's law. So that no matter how hard we try to keep God's law, we end in death. And now Paul says that's the old covenant. Now again, I, I, I've said it before that and I'm not going to get into that now. Was it really a covenant of works? Was it, was, did God really intend for the Sinai covenant to be that? That's another discussion. But at any rate, it's clear that Paul sees that covenant as a picture of this kind of a merit-based covenant. In other words, you earn the, the blessing of the covenant by obedience. And Paul says that's a ministry of death. And the whole history of the Old Testament is the history of that failure. But my friends, there comes a time in, in uh, the Old Testament when the prophets begin to preach about something new that God is going to do. Now, it's in many places in the Old Testament. I'm going to read to you the most common, the, the most clear one. But in Jeremiah 31... Oh, I see I put that on the on the back of this outline here. In Jeremiah 31. Oh, so there's the, the verses from 2 Corinthians 3 that I quoted already. But notice what it says in Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like that mosaic, not the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
Now I underlined for you those words. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. Now my friends, that's simple language that no longer will God just give them a list of his law. Here are the rules that you are to keep. Here are the commandments you are to observe. No, now God will take those commandments and he will write them here. That means that now he will not only give the law, but he will give a desire and the ability to keep those commandments. That is the, that is the key promise of the new covenant. Now, how does God do that? How does God enable his people to keep his commandments? In and of themselves, they fail. It's a ministry of death. Well, we have that in the book of Ezekiel, and I underlined that line for you. Ezekiel chapter 36. I will put my spirit within you. And now, my friends, I think you see how we get to the book of Acts, don't you? Because now the book of Acts is the history of God's new covenant. It is the history of God's answer to the deficiencies of the old covenant. The old covenant did not give people the spirit to obey. And again, I know, I know we have to qualify that somewhat, but let's just stick with what Paul's saying here. The old covenant did not provide the spirit of God to keep the commandments that God provided. And in that sense, it killed the people who were under it. It was being under the law. But now under the new covenant, God says, I'm going to give you my law. It's not that there's not going to be a law anymore, but now I'm going to give you my spirit. And he will lead you and empower you to keep those commandments. And what do we have in the book of Acts? How far do we have to read in the book of Acts before we read about the Holy Spirit? Well, I see it already in verse 2. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. But let's continue. Because we read how Jesus gathered his, his people together. In verse 4, he gathered them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What did the Father promise his people? Well, it tells us that. Which he had said, you heard of from me. And then verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you see, my friends, that promise that God, and here think about baptism as, as an immersion, right? Baptism as being drenched, being flooded in the Holy Spirit. That's what God says. This is my promise. That where the old covenant was deficient, now I'm going to answer that. And in the book of Acts, my friends, we're going to read story after story after story after story of the Holy Spirit coming down and doing what people cannot do. In fact, I think I put that quote on there as well. Uh, one man said that the book of Acts describes not so much the acts of the apostles as it describes the acts of the Holy Spirit. That's really a better way to think about the book of Acts. It is the acts of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, my friends, is God's great answer to the deficiency of the old covenant that God made with Moses, that God made with the children of Israel. And that's why the prophets began to cry out for something new. The old way is not working. God gave us his law at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 20 and in Exodus 21, all the people of Israel promised to keep it. We will do this. We and our children will keep the commandments of God. They resolved to do it. But their resolve fell short. 
In the book of Acts, my friends, we're going to read of a direct and powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit more than at any other time in human history. And God is going to show us that what his people Israel could not do, God will do by the power of his Spirit. That's the book of Acts. <clears throat> well, let me make some application on this then. First, I, I have this, my first application is Luke the historian. Because again, I, I return to that point that I started the sermon with, my friends, what a, how interesting it is that this man who lived and died in obscurity and continues to live in obscurity. We know next to nothing about Luke. All we can do is guess at where he met the Apostle Paul, why they met, how they met, under what circumstances. And yet God takes this man in obscurity and he uses him in a powerful way so that when you're reading the New Testament, you can bet you're going to come to read something by Luke. And today we continue to rejoice in reading Luke's history which was just a letter exchange between Luke and Theophilus. But now God has used it for his own purpose, to bring us his word. Let's rejoice in the providence of God in working so beautifully in the lives of these two men to give us this great gift of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Well, then I come to my second point of application, the new covenant. I feel like, my friends, that as we come to the book of Acts, it's as if we've come into a stadium. It's as if we're sitting in the, in the bleachers of this stadium, and we're going to watch now what God will do. That God is going to work by his Spirit in the lives of people. He's going to work in the life of Peter. He's going to work in the life of Stephen. He's going to work in the life of Paul, and many others besides. And we have the great privilege, as we work through these sermons, of, of being spectators to the glorious work of God that he's doing in the world. We've seen what man can do in the history of Israel. We've seen what man is capable of. Now let's turn and see what God is capable of. Now let's watch what the Holy Spirit will do. Israel is the history of failure. Acts is the history of triumph. When I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't help but think about Psalm 46. I feel like this is, the, this, is the, this is the verse that leads us into the stadium, that leads us to our seat. And as we sit down, we hear from Psalm 46, verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. That's the book of Acts. I feel like that, my friends, is the, the leading idea that we have in the book of Acts. And as we sit down to see what God will do, we can worship. We can, this, this should lead us to worship. And, and not only to, to worship for what God has done, but to think, my friends, that as Christians, God has called us to come alongside him and to work with him in this. 
Yes, God takes the lead. God goes before us. But in this work, my friends, God calls us to work with him. Now, the title of the sermon is A Kingdom Perspective. A Kingdom Perspective. And with this, I close. What do I mean by a kingdom perspective? By this, I mean, my friends, of a Christian who looks back and sees the promise of a new covenant that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And with that promise in his hands, he goes forward. And what does he see when he looks forward? He sees Acts 1, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the remotest parts of the earth. That's the text for the, for the book of Acts this morning, my friends. The power comes from the new covenant, from the Spirit of God. The goal, the aim, is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That, my friends, is a kingdom perspective. Power and vision. Power and vision. This is the vision, my friends, of somebody who prays every day. Thy kingdom come. Remember, that's in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My friend, I ask you, I ask you this morning, dear congregation, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian this morning? Are you one who professes to have their sins forgiven because of what Christ did in your place on the cross? I trust we are Christians this morning. I trust that's why we're here. And I trust we profess the name of Christ. So let me take that one step further, my friends, and ask you, is this your perspective on life? Is this what drives you forward in your life? Power and vision. Is that, your, is that what you see? Is that your perspective? This is a point of self-examination for, for us, my friends, as we stand before the book of Acts. This is what God will challenge us with then, this morning. What is my perspective? What is the goal at which I'm aiming in my life? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You see, the coming of the kingdom of God, it begins and it grows and it grows and it expands. And God calls us to be a part of that growth. He calls us to labor alongside him, to labor with the power that he gives us and with which he fills us to go forward and to put that vision into practice. <clears throat> Maybe I can put that in more <clears throat> contemporary terms for us this morning, my friends. We talked about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. This morning, my friends, I would say that for us, a kingdom perspective is me. Has the kingdom of God begun in my heart? In my family? Look at your children. Look at your husband, your wife. Look at those who are closest to you. What about our church family? If we can continue the circle out a little farther. My church family. What am I doing to labor to establish the kingdom of God in my church family? And then, my friends, we can take it farther. Into my workplace. Into those who work with me from day to day. Those with whom I come into contact. Do you see, my friends, the kingdom perspective as, as it grows out from what God has done in our own heart, what God has done in the life of our family and in the life of our church, and into the workplace. And finally, my friends, is there, is there anyone here who has this perspective unto the uttermost parts of the world? Do I have that perspective? Paul had it. 
You see, Paul heard of this place called Hispania, Spain. He hadn't been there. He knew there were people there. And he says, I've got to go there and preach the gospel. Do you see the perspective that this man had? My friends, God calls us to have that perspective. To pray every day, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then to step out in our lives and to think, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the world. That's the vision. That's the perspective that the book of Acts will lead us to. And the power comes from the Spirit of God. God does not ask us to bring back numbers, to bring back results. He asks us to step out in faith and to carry the message of the gospel unto the uttermost parts of the world. May God bless us, my friends, with that perspective, that we might be able in our own generation, in our own time, to see the mighty works of God working through us to accomplish his purposes in this world. May God grant it for his name's sake. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you then this morning, having had set before us these twin realities that you empower your people by pouring out upon them the Holy Spirit of God and then setting before them this pathway, this way forward, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world, to the farthest reaches, to every corner of the globe, that the message of Jesus Christ, life in Christ and death in Adam, that it might come to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would work through us that you would work through your people to accomplish your purposes in this world, this dark world in which we live. Lord, I pray that you would bless the congregation then, that you would anoint us by your spirit, that you would open our mouths, that you'd give us the tongue of the learned to speak a word in due season, that the gospel might go forward with power to your glory. Lord, we pray in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own souls. We pray in the lives of our families and in our church and in every other place beyond. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and pray that you would bless and keep us this day. We pray that we might also return this evening to rejoice once again in God our Savior. In his name we trust. Amen. <clears throat>
the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.